Welcome to Chet Talks, expert insights at the intersection of health and technology. Chet Talks is brought to you by the University of Rochester's Center for Health and Technology, an innovator in clinical research and care. Learn more at chettalks.org. Our guest today is one of the leading thinkers in big data in healthcare and the pharmaceutical industry. Dr. Chris Boone is the Vice President and Global Head of Health Economics and Outcomes Research for AbbVie. He was previously the Vice President and Head of Global Medical Epidemiology and Big Data Analysis at Pfizer. Dr. Boone is also an adjunct professor at NYU and has nearly 20 years of experience at the intersection of health and technology as an executive, social entrepreneur, patient advocate, and futurist. Dr. Boone completed his PhD in public affairs at the University of Texas at Dallas, go Cowboys, and two executive programs at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Chris, welcome to Chet Talks. Thank you, sir. Uh, you know, I, I gotta admit, it's quite depressing when you say uh, 20 years. I'm like, that makes me feel really, really old. Um, we're gonna get to the point, we're just gonna cap it there. We're just gonna say 20 plus uh, thereafter. <laughs> when we have you back next year, we'll do we'll just keep 20 plus. Keep it there. <laughs> just leave it at 20, yeah. So, uh, Chris, you're a self-described data hippie. So a data hippie should be able to give us a definition of big data. What's your definition of big data? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think that big data itself is just really uh, amassing this very varied uh, and diverse types of data sets. I think, you know, most of the time, you know, if you think about traditional data management practices, uh, whether they be just curating, uh, processing, or analyzing the data, we're looking at a situation where da uh, data is so large and, uh, and, and so varied that those traditional uh, data management practices aren't adequate for what we're trying to do. Uh, but, I, but I do want to back into something really quickly that you, you with the, the history behind the data hippie uh, movement is that uh, several years ago when we were really focused on this idea of data democratization, um, that was really the impetus for it. Uh, my, uh, I, I was hoping to really kind of catalyze the idea of data sharing across healthcare to really uh, to, to, drive, to drive some level of innovation. And uh, honestly, at that time, I wasn't even working in pharma. Um, I was actually uh, leading the Health Data Consortium, and it was all about health data sharing or open data. But, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's interesting now that, uh, now what, six years later or so, uh, that I'm in the pharma world, I'm still advocating, uh, well, I guess it's interesting and depressing in some cases that we're still having the same discussions around the lack of data sharing uh, that's there. And, uh, but, but, but now, sitting on the, the pharma side of the fence, um, you know, I have a, a fresh perspective, and, and honestly, I see the need, um, and I'm sure we'll get into this as part of our discussion, to really uh, have data that's shared a bit more broadly across the industry uh, to ensure that um, things such as, uh, you know, drug development uh, is really uh, reflecting, uh, you know, the populations that we need to, to really treat. And so, anyway, so that's really a little bit about the whole data hippie moniker that I use. So can you give us an example of where we're making progress on the data sharing front? You know, initially when we were doing this, it was very, I almost think it was a very narrow scope. It was really just saying, even almost just addressing that interoperability issue of, uh, of provider to provider relationships. Hey, can we just share data with each other and potentially um, make that data available to uh, patients and consumers, right? Um, you know, but it always felt that, you know, the ecosystem wasn't inclusive enough, you know, so it was like I was advocating for this idea of open data, but it was in a very closed system, you know, is what I like to say. 
uh, meaning that um, when we were having many of these discussions, honestly, there were, uh, you know, there were representatives from, from government or the public sector, there were representatives from providers, that you had the kind of uh, uh, professional medical societies and nonprofits. You had these different stakeholders that were at the table, but it didn't include like life sciences, which I thought was really, really interesting. One of the more critical uh, stakeholders in the whole uh, healthcare ecosystem. But, um, but I do think we've made some progress. Um, don't get me wrong. I think um, with some of the technologies that have been, and you know, that have technological platforms that have been established, I think Apple HealthKit and Apple Re uh, Apple Research Kit were. Uh, were, were, were huge technologies for making this happen. Not only was I able to capture uh, all of my data in a passive uh, fashion, um, but I'm also able to then distribute that data to, uh, to clinical studies that I think are, uh, are, are relevant and of the utmost importance to, to Chris, right? And I think that that's what, uh, so I think that we've seen advances um, in these very novel approaches through, from big tech that's come into the fold to address many of these issues that we've been struggling with for a while. So Apple Research Kit was launched in 2015. The first time really the idea of using smartphones, where's my smartphone, yeah. uh, to enable people to participate in research, an Apple endorsement here. Um, yeah. And uh, five apps were used, one for asthma, breast cancer, uh, diabetes, uh, and Parkinson's disease was one of them. I can't remember what the third one is, I'm sorry. Or cardiovascular, and each of these enrolled anywhere from 10,000, tens of thousands of research participants uh, in them. Is this a model for going forward? I think it is the model. I really think, uh, and, and not just simply because the technology makes it easier for, uh, uh, for patients and consumers to really participate, but I also think that there, you're seeing a, a societal shift or a cultural norm um, that's being established where uh, patients are definitely wanting to own their own data and they're definitely wanting to be more active and have a voice in, in how, uh, what their experiences have been with certain therapies. And, uh, and certainly, uh, you, you know, we put, we've now placed a, a heavier weight or a, uh, on, on the idea of uh, patient-reported outcomes, right, and, uh, and what their experience has been. And so I think these technologies only enable that. You know, and you're hearing more and more now where people are demanding to have access to their data. Um, before when they were demanding it, you know, it was like they would go to whatever hospital records office and, and, and they would either give them this huge stack of papers and say, here, here you go, go on your merry way. Or if you were lucky, they may have downloaded it to some CD-ROM uh, for, for you or, uh, you know, and, and handed it to you. You still don't know what to do with it. It was in a format that really wasn't uh, readable uh, to just, uh, you know, the average person. So I think now we've seen the number of standards that have come by. They make it simple. The Apple Health Kit, you can track these things. It can integrate uh, with a number of health systems uh, in the country. Um, it's, it's human readable, you know, and, uh, and you can actually, and, and you don't really necessarily have to do any manual data entry. That's the huge thing, too, because if you think about it, when Microsoft um, had its health fault platform, I, I mean, one of the reasons I believe the adoption was so low was that people were like, I have to go in every single time and go in and manually type in um, whatever data was captured from my, uh, my recent um, uh, uh, doctor visit, and, and that's just not a sustainable approach. So uh, the more integration we have, uh, the more uh, readable, human readable, the data is, and, and thus you can and actually drive behaviors and, action, and actions, I think the, the better off will be. 
do you see uh, pharmaceutical companies embracing smartphones, uh, other digital devices in their drug development program? Yeah, I don't think we really have a choice. Um, you know, I think the days of it being uh, of optionality are, are done. I think uh, uh, biopharma has, uh, you know, and, and you're already seeing this. I mean, you know, these organizations have been uh, investigating most appropriate uh, digital health technologies to engage with uh, patients directly uh, for a number of years now. But I think that where you're seeing now, you hear the term beyond the peel, um, where we have to demonstrate value beyond the peel, and that can be in the form of providing uh, education to patients around um, their clinical conditions, um, ensuring the most appropriate, uh, you know, uh, mechanism to, uh, to increase uh, medication adherence or certain other things. And then also there's interest in understanding, you know, hearing from the patient on what they're experiencing. I think that, um, and the most effective way to do that is through uh, many of these digital technologies or apps or, or other things like that. I think that uh, one of the challenges that we've, faced um, as part of this is around the trust factor. I mean, there, you know, it's, uh, um, I think that, you know, and the more you hear it and, uh, and it, it become much more politicized around the, the level of distrust uh, to pharma from consumers, um, whether right, wrong, or indifferent, is, uh, is something that we have to work on. And we have to establish that rapport um, and, and certainly sh show and demonstrate and prove um, that we're part of this and we're really looking out for the, the best interest of the patient. And, and that's incumbent upon us to do that. Uh, so we're going to come to trust in a little bit. Uh, we're in the setting of a big public health uh, challenge with COVID. Uh, yeah. Seems like a great opportunity for pharmaceutical industries to engender some trust with the communities. And it has. I mean, or we have, right? Have you, if you think about it. I mean, I, I think the uh, if you looked at... Uh, favorability polls and, uh, and you know, which is just you know, beauty contests in many respects. Um, I think there's been a greater appreciation for, uh, for biopharmaceuticals uh, in this current time. Because I think people, and what it really boils down to is people getting a, a deeper understanding of what exactly, you know, we do and why, right? Um, I think, you know, the, the narratives that are out there, I won't even repeat them, but, um, but the, very, the, the different narratives that are out there um, some may be grounded. I don't think all are, are necessarily true, um, but you really get an appreciation for in real time what um, life sciences actually does and, and at the speed at which we're trying to move to address this pandemic. And, you know, it's really been truly an all hands on deck um, situation. And you don't hear anything about folks looking at this as an opportunity to really enrich themselves, but more so how do we address this pandemic head on by getting a vaccine and or treatment out as fast as we possibly can. And, um, and let me go on the record and say that, you know, um, a number of companies has come out and said they can have it out by the end of the year or 2021. In either case, it would still be a record uh, time for getting a drug approved, uh, developed and approved. And so I think that's, uh, it's a remarkable feat, um, you know, and, uh, and, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, it's one of those moments which is, that I think we don't talk about enough. Uh, you know, when you think about all of the different, the role that biopharma, and this is not, you know, I'm not trying to make a pitch or sell people on why they should care about biopharmaceuticals, but if you think about all of the, uh, the pandemics, viruses, or uh, diseases that, that have been addressed and mitigated um, through the form of vaccines and our drugs, then you really got to say, wow, I mean, healthcare and public health more broadly has come a long way. And I think that, uh, you know, if we focus more on all of these um, 
things that have been addressed over the over the decades, you know, you, you'll have a greater appreciation for what we do. But uh, let's leave here to there. So uh, one other big challenge for uh, pharmaceutical companies is uh, digital transformation. You shared this <laughs> cartoon with me uh, yesterday. Yeah. I, so, I can see it. Yeah. Is this the pharmaceutical industry? Is this why you shared this to me? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's uh, I think it's every industry that uh, you know or we could pick on pharma if you want to do that but uh, um, I think uh, you know we'll, we'll pick on pharma for uh, for for this for the purpose of this discussion but I think generally um, most industries all assume that their industry cannot be disrupted and that goes all the way back to the Kodak the Polaroids the blockbusters of the world right or even travel and um i mean you name it you name the industry i mean even when it came to uh the media industry uh we can go on and on and so uh, but every single one has been disrupted at this point and um and so i always think that it's interesting how folks have treated digital transformation again as if it's an optional pathway it's a nice to have right um and i think that uh, and biopharma, we would certainly be uh, fooling ourselves if we didn't embrace the idea of disrupting ourselves uh, by embracing uh, digital technologies and figuring out the new business and operating models that are necessary to, to go forward. I think there's a huge opportunity for uh, many of the digital tech or information technology companies to come in and be disrupted by the mere fact, I mean, back to what we opened this conversation with, the level of data that they've amassed over the years and the understanding that they have of our patients and the people that are, uh, you know, uh, of our patients about our products um, is powerful, you know, and so they, you know, they, there's a number of ways they can go with, go there with. Uh, now, obviously, um, this industry is certainly uh, highly regulated, and many of these guys uh, don't necessarily want to embark on that. And I think that there is, um, from their perspective, there, there is not. Um, a deep understanding of how drug development really works. Um, but I do know that, uh, you know, in collaboration with a pharma company, we can do some extraordinary things. I mean, with the data that they've been able to collect and understand about people, and with our understanding of the uh, drug development process and the regulatory landscape. So it's important that we uh, think about ways to partner in the future. Does that mean that the Google alphabets uh, and barely uh, of the world, that they're going to get more into drug development? You know, I mean, it's possible, right? I don't, I don't know what their uh, strategic priorities are, but uh, um, I'm, I'm certain that, they, that they've explored it. You know, I think, um, um, you know, it seems that they've been uh, kind of teetering on um, uh, embarking in this. But, but, you know, I think people quickly realize that it's much more difficult than you think. Right. Even, you know, and uh, in the industry, it's much more regulated than uh, most people presume. And so uh, it's not as easy as it sounds, you know. You're a big fan of many of these digital technologies. Are there digital technologies that have you most excited? Oh, man. I, I mean, you know, this uh, I, I think the implantable technologies is certainly uh, something that's fascinating. You know, they, they talk about this idea of maybe. Uh, one day having implantable cell phones in our, you know, where you don't even need a cell phone, you just maybe it's implanted, a sensor implanted into your tongue or something, I don't know. Um, and uh, which I think is uh, uh, pretty, pretty funny uh, because I, I feel like I've seen comedians speak about that in the past and to think that that's actual possibilities is uh, pretty hilarious. But 
Um, I, I think um, the idea of neurotechnologies um, and, and the full understanding of the brain, I know President Obama was big into his human brain initiative. Uh, that was one big thing and, uh, and working with other governments uh, globally to really fully understand how the brain functions in certain environments is huge. Um, you know, I, uh, as kind of the self-proclaimed environmentalist, I think uh, the idea of smart cities and smart farming are, are two areas that are kind of outside of my day-to-day uh, -day work, but, I, but I'm extremely fascinated by um, from the simple fact that I think smart cities are more focused on, uh, you know, obviously utilizing uh, utilities or ele uh, electricity more efficiently um, with their kind of uh, intelligent lighting and, you know, and, and even uh, uh, the, uh, the idea of having a city with no street lights or stoplights is, uh, is uh, pretty interesting. I think Singapore is exploring that. Um, and then when a smart farming, it's really about, I mean, most people don't, they underestimate how progressive farming is when it comes to their adoption of digital technologies. And, and they do it through, uh, through the tractors, which all have uh, advanced technologies to assess climate and uh, to assess when the most appropriate time is to farm or how, how you know, uh, how long, you, you know, uh, foods will stay fresh, um, you know, and when to plant and when not to plant. I think these things are, are quite fascinating how they've been able to do this. Um, I'm, uh, it, the smart farming thing just really fascinates me. Maybe I'll do that in another life. Uh, so these applications to cities and farming, are these applications that you see then that can be applied to drug development? I do. I do think there's an opportunity to uh, to leverage learnings from other industries, and we, we certainly should be uh, uh, considering that at all, at all costs. I mean, I think when it comes to, obviously, uh, the use of uh, artificial intelligence, um, you know, we obviously, very, very artificial intelligence and robotics, I mean, you can look at other industries. I mean, there, there are some parallels when it comes to manufacturing and supply chain, right? That's something that's consistent across all industries. And the more we can learn from industries that uh, do it better, um, then uh, the better off we'll all be. We're getting lots of questions coming in. Just a reminder uh, to the listeners, you can just go in the Q&A function and uh, uh, put in a question. We'll get to those, uh, uh, get those to Chris uh, momentarily. Before I want to discuss two big social challenges that we're confronting uh, as a country. Uh, one is race. Uh, the death of George Floyd has again highlighted the enormous disparities in this country. Uh, do you want to talk about those disparities at a high level and then maybe focus on those in drug development? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, wow. I mean, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a, I don't want to say it's a loaded question, it's a heavy question, but um, it's something I think is near and dear to me. First of all, I've been talking about this issue around diversity in clinical trials. Uh, for a number of years now, how how um, that's a, a, certainly a, a big problem. But I'll come back to that. I think when you know, right now at the center of much of this, uh, much of the Black Lives Matter protest has been police brutality. Um, but I think there are other issues that are directly affect uh, the African American community that should not go understated. And I do hear them talked about a little bit on the surface level. Um, the one thing is obviously uh, the the criminal justice system. Um, you know, I mean, so you have police brutality, then you got the criminal justice reform, which I know we've, uh, many uh, political figures have discussed for a long time. And, and honestly, it's still disproportionately black men, uh, you know, in, in the prison system. And so, uh, so that, that's, uh, that's an unfortunate situation. I think um, the issue around uh, black wealth 
um, which also leads into an issue around the quality of education in many of these uh, communities and, and many of the uh, uh, inequities you see there or underinvestment. And then when I think about it from my vantage point, I think about the digital divide as one of those bigger issues and one of those bigger challenges. If you think about it with COVID now, we're asking many of the students to now work, you know, essentially through Zoom, like we're doing right now, right? Um, and, uh, but if they don't have adequate, like, internet access or high-speed internet then how do you adequately do that or and then even when they're doing their work you know i'm finding that many of these students now that work uh, through their smartphones which i think is is very interesting it probably shows how old i am too but they're doing a lot of their work through the smartphones well if you don't have a smartphone in order to do much of this then you also learn the challenges there so i think you got issues around criminal justice reform uh, you got issues around black wealth quality of education but now let's jump into this issue around health. Um, you know, when it comes to COVID, um, <laughs> I'm still kind of, uh, uh, you know, I'm flabbergasted by the fact that we have, you know, African Americans, 13% of the population, but yet 24, 25% of COVID cases, you know? Um, and then you start to look at some of the numbers that are coming out uh, around, um, uh, you know, even if there were a vaccine created, many are still highly reluctant to be part of that uh, that clinical trial or even use the vaccine, even if it's uh, um, uh, approved through some accelerated uh, pathway. And so the question is why though, you know, and I don't think those are always the issues. Why don't we discuss the underlying issues that affect um, much of these issues around trust? Now, granted, there are some social determinant uh, issues that affect uh, 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 one's ability to participate in a clinical trial. And people don't talk about that. I think the easiest thing to say is that there's a distrust uh, to the system. And obviously we're gonna link that back, at least for the African-American community, is the Tuskegee uh, experiment, right? And, um, but there's also issues around, well, if I have to commit to doing this clinical trial, I have to mix X number of days of work. I may not have child or even elder care for my parents. Um, I just don't have, you know, they can't commit themselves to the regimen that's necessary for, um, um, for, uh, for being a participant in a clinical trial. But then you also have this issue, uh, and I remember I was uh, speaking to uh, the National Medical Association last year and uh, at the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation conference that they have every September. And, you know, and, and my talk was really centered around this issue around diversity in clinical trials and how we can use rural evidence to really be uh, uh, an alternative path uh, to addressing this issue. Um, but, but, I, but one of the docs actually stood up and, um, and you know, and, and really kind of uh, planted seed in my head around the issue that he believes the reason that we see such low participation from uh, for minorities, specifically African-Americans, in clinical trials has more to do with the fact that they don't trust docs who don't look like them, right? So, um, so then, I, you know, I was like, oh, so I'm up here thinking about in terms of data and not addressing the core issue, which is for, is that person-to-person -person contact um, to say that I just want a doctor who, I trust a doctor more who looks like me, who's telling me about this clinical trial than I do someone who doesn't. And so I think there's a number of issues to address when it comes to the issue of issues of or challenges associated with uh, minority participation in, in clinical trials. And um, but I think they're all they all can be addressed. 
you know, it's just a matter of uh, putting so just some in the data right on the digital divide. Twenty percent of households, one out of every five households in the U.S., doesn't have access to broadband, and one of every five households mm -hmm. doesn't have a smartphone. So you know, things that you know you and I take for granted are yeah. from, uh, universal. And then on the clinical trial front, so one study found that participation in minorities in cancer clinical trials has actually decreased in the past 14 years. And then yeah. uh, one, of, one of our colleagues uh, in clinical trials in Parkinson's disease, only 17% of studies reported participation by race at all. 83% didn't even comment on race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're looking at that uh, that study from 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 JAMA. I'm assuming, right? Yeah. Because I, I saw that one too, and that's that's one that I've I've referenced um, before. And I know that the FDA has certainly uh, been um, um, has been have been motivated. I mean, they've actually issued some regulatory guidance around how to ensure how to improve uh, diversity in clinical trials, and to the point where it will be consideration for getting your actual drug approved. And I know that uh, many of the many pharma companies have made at least uh, as of late, a concerted effort to address that issue. But it's, but it's difficult. You can create the environment, but the people, you, it's, like, it's, it's not as simple as build and they will come. Um, I think that you have to go and meet people where they are. And, um, and that's just something that we have to be better about. So maybe Abby can put the, the link to the article Dr. Boone was referencing is by Dr. Vivek Murphy, M-U-R-T-H-Y, the former Surgeon General of the United States on uh, clinical trial participation. Uh, by race, uh, it was published in JAMA. Um, recently, uh, Chris, you retweeted a speech by Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. in which he said, in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. Uh, what aren't we hearing? Man, and I got no likes from that tweet, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that, um, you know, the, the reality is, is that, you know, we, we spoke about this earlier when we talked about the deeper issues uh, in the community. I think that people have been, um, and, I, and I'll give you a real example for me personally, um, you know, at, 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 at one of my, uh, in one of my positions, I won't, I won't mention the company, um, you know, I was dealing directly with some microaggressions from, uh, um, from, from, uh, from coworkers uh, or coworker. And, uh, and I remember I voiced to someone who was a uh, non-black individual and, and, and their response was, are you, are you sure you're just not being overly sensitive? Uh, are you sure that's what's really happening? And, uh, and so here it is, I'm obviously not a very sensitive guy, I don't think, um, but, um, but nonetheless, I've expressed uh, this concern or this frustration. And, uh, and the response I got back was, are you sure that's basically not all in your head? And so, uh, and, you know, if you think about the spirit of that quote, it's really saying that, you know, people who've expressed how they felt, they've expressed um, their frustration for, for many, many years, and it just goes unheard, unseen. Um, you know, that's all in your head, it really doesn't exist. And, you know, you think about um, Will Smith, who actually said one of the more pro profound uh, statements, who made one of the more profound statements about this whole issue, um, uh, after uh, George Floyd's uh, death, it's really, he said that, uh, you know, it's not that it's gotten worse, it's just getting filmed, right? And so here we are in a situation where people, have, uh, we as people have been 
voicing and uh, this frustration and these experiences for many, many years and people just ignored it. And it's not until you have evidence that you can't deny that, uh, um, that people now believe it. And so I think, uh, and then what makes it worse is that even with the evidence there, as we've seen as of late, um, there's still no, no consequences for it. And so, uh, so really that's, that's where you are. I mean, it's just, uh, I'm not an advocate uh, for rioting or looting, um, uh, but, but also I can empathize with the frustration as being someone who's been a victim of it myself. And so, uh, so that's really uh, what, I, what I meant in the spirit of that, uh, of that particular quote from the, from the great MLK. Some more listening to be done. Uh, we got some questions. More actions to be done. It's <laughs> listening. Uh, listening, but I mean, it, we can talk till we're blue in the face. I mean, my, my whole thing is that, you know, let's do something about it. You know, I think, um, you know, we, you know, I think now everyone, oh, well, let's talk about it. It's like, yeah, we can talk about it, I think, but, uh, but can we just do something in the meantime? Can we not do these uh, things in parallel <laughs> or in conjunction with one another? Can we listen and do, you know, do we have to, does it have to be like this sequential process? You know, we're going to listen for five years or 10 years and then we'll do something. It's like, eh, I think people want to see something done now. Good. I might come back to you at the end and ask you what we should be doing. Uh, first, yeah. I'm going to give the, give the floor to some of our listeners. Uh, Derek Bo Bowen asks, technology aside, sitting inside a large pharmaceutical company, do you see any movement toward flexibility for data sharing? Uh, as far as, I mean, I guess the question, and I don't know if he means uh, referencing uh, clinical trial data or real-world data, which are two different things. And, and when I'm using the term real-world data, it's kind of big data, but it's data that's captured outside of the clinical trial. And I know that when it comes to clinical trial data sharing, um, there's been a number of initiatives that's been happening, you know, and many, uh, and many pharmaceutical companies are actively contributing um, their data to uh, different sites uh, in order to, to, to publish and make that accessible to, um, to researchers who are qualified to do these types of analyses. Um, but when it comes to um, um, the other non-clinical trial type of data, um, you know, we're still in this uh, point where when I think about it's not data sharing, it's more like data transactions, you know, like uh, where you have data aggregators who are, um, who are essentially curating data and then they are uh, packaging it and selling it to pharma. Um, what I would like to see um, is what I, I feel is much more of a learning health system where we are working uh, in collaboration with uh, providers and payers and patients to really understand um, how our therapies work in the real world. And then you get, you almost get, you're getting real time feedback, which then allows uh, providers to then adjust their own clinical practice protocols. Um, but it also allows us to learn from those patient experiences and we incorporate those learnings back into the um, uh, drug development process. Um, that's what I really hope. So it doesn't have, always have to be like, I'm going to take this data and I'm going to send it to you, Ray. You know, it could be like you and I could be sitting together. You can be collecting this data. We're reviewing it and we're running these studies together and we're learning from those experiences that we both use those findings to make uh, to either further clinical practice or clinical and or clinical research. On the clinical practice side, Mina Atten, uh, asks what kind of advances have been used for using electronic health records of hospitalized patients to conduct clinical research? Can you give an example? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a number of companies that are doing these very things. I mean, obviously, Flatiron, Coda uh, come to mind. I mean, these guys, I know Coda uh, signed a deal with the FDA, um, which they're, you know, kind of going into this whole idea of, of, of understanding, uh, uh, you know, uh, response rates with certain therapies in certain subpopulations. That's exactly what they're doing. They're using um, much of that EHR data to do that. The problem that we have is that many of these EHR platforms weren't designed for clinical research. Um, they were more designed for uh, probably more payer reimbursement and at, at best uh, clinical documentation for, uh, for, the, for the physician, but they aren't, uh, it, it isn't the same quality of data that we would necessarily capture and curate from a randomized clinical trial. And so, uh, so I think that where the opportunity is, is for us to uh, improve um, the data quality that's captured in EHRs to make it more, uh, we'll say, uh, higher quality for a clinical research person. But there are a number of uh, situations where I've had a number of conversations with different health systems who are particularly interested in, um, in getting into the world of, of, of clinical research, uh, specifically uh, drug development by partnering with pharma in order to do that. Um, you know, and so I, I do think those things will get better. Uh, Dr. Ravi Ramchandran, our friend, asked, while the time for adding smart devices in clinical studies is long past, there are no common set of data standards. Access to the raw data coming out of the devices is spotty, uh, nor do we necessarily know how the algorithms are processing the raw data to give us insights. How do we successfully incorporate and trust the data in our clinical trials? Uh, we don't right now. I mean, I think, but I do think that there are a number of initiatives um, where uh, where folks are, are focused on developing standards for, uh, for data collection and, and improving the standards. I know FIRE has certainly been uh, the standard of choice uh, for many of us. Um, I do think too, but the, the, the algorithms point is a very, very interesting. So, so yes, you have the, uh, the lack of data standards for what we uh, capture and, and in what format it's actually captured in. That's one. Uh, but then you got this lack of visibility and transparency into the algorithm and, how, and what's happening behind um, you know, the, the whole black box effect is what is going to be, I think it's going to be a huge problem if we don't address it. And I think that um, um, I don't, I don't want to say that that's where the regulators should step in, but I do think there needs to be some level of oversight um, as we continuously adopt more and more AI um, technologies into the discovery and development process. Um, and, uh, and there's going to have to be some level of visibility into this algorithm and its data source and essentially how it's getting to um, the output that it's getting to. And, um, um, you know, and, and so it may be a point where we're, you know, not only as part of the uh, dossier that we're submitting to regulators, you're also submitting the algorithm itself. So it's, you know, you find a situation where potentially uh, the, uh, the data source and the algorithm are just as important as the drug itself as part of uh, regulatory approval. And I think that's a, a certain, Certainly a possibility. And Mary Beth Arzak asked some questions about sharing data with patients. Have you thought about the uh, individualized data sharing based on what's most important to the patient? Yeah, and, and I'm assuming they're talking clinical trial data, or uh, they didn't, or say just data, data sharing in general. I, I, you know, and so uh, it's funny because last year I know there was a was that last year or earlier this year where we had the the big discussion, and I know that. Um, HHS was releasing uh, its guidance around uh, data sharing, and you had a number of uh, 
uh, of what was actually Judy Faulkner at Epic and then a number of health systems that signed on to her letter that were refuting the idea and, and, and the rationale was that, you know, kind of putting this data in the hands of patients and allowing them to kind of share it wherever would somehow pose um, some privacy concerns and some privacy issues. Um, I've always been an advocate, as you know, of giving the data back to the patient in any form. I don't care if it's clinical trial data or if it's just uh, data that they get from their provider. And, uh, and it's really their prerogative as far as how they want to use it. Um, but I do think that folks should understand the, uh, the unintended risk of, uh, and potential risk of, of making that data available and them sharing it. And I don't know if that's, um, I don't know if we're doing enough education around that part, but, uh, but the idea of sharing the data, that to me is non-negotiable. It's just more so of like, what guardrails can we put in place to ensure people don't inflict unnecessary damage on themselves? And, uh, and that's really where where I fall with that. Cheryl Fitzer-Addis, uh, one of our uh, friends asked, how do you see digital health outcomes being incorporated into payer decisions in the US? Oh man, that's, that's gonna be huge. Um, I think that we, you know, most pharma companies are focused on building out that capability and strengthening it um, when it comes to uh, um, certainly uh, the many of the PROs. And, uh, and I think that um, the, the, the I, I think the question I, what I'm hearing that question to be is a question around value, right? And um, and then when you think about value, there's uh, multiple uh, you know perspectives or dimensions of, of value. Um, obviously, you have the clinical value piece, which obviously they didn't even care about. You have the economic piece. Um, you have this kind of societal or human humanistic perspective, which is like how does it affect essentially your quality of life and improve it? And um, then it becomes more or less uh, you know if the patients feel that hey um, why this may not be a curative therapy if it extends my life or improves my quality of life now i place a higher value on that so really i think you'll see the conversation um shift more to value and um and that's and a lot of that has been driven by how does the patient um, feel about value and what do they define as value for them and uh and that's based on the clinical economic you know humanistic uh, perspective of value. Dr. Adam Dicker from Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia asks about the digital divide. He says, we have a population of patients with no cell phone or internet. Due to COVID, we can't send someone to onboard them. Do you have thoughts or suggestions? To onboard patients for the clinical trial? Uh, for clinical trials, or I think even for clinical care, especially if they don't have cell phone or internet. That goes back to the, the limited broadband issue. I think that, uh, to me, uh, when I think about the digital divide, it's, it, and I, hey, I could be on an island by myself, when I think about internet access, to me, it seems like a public good. It should just be available. I don't understand why people have to pay for internet access in, in, in the US to me. And so that, that, that's, uh, that's number one. And I think that what's been interesting about this kind of, this, this whole, uh, the whole pandemic is that the increase in the adoption of telehealth uh, mechanisms. I mean, I know that um, many folks who've never used it are using it now. Um, so that's interesting. I also think when it comes to the idea of doing virtual clinical trials with remote, remote, uh, uh, you know, uh, with remote and digital technologies, um, I, I, I expect that that would come up, uh, would be technologies that would increase in, in prevalence as well. But as far as addressing it, the only way to address it, honestly, 
the broadband issue is to make it a public good and make it available to everybody. Yeah, that's my um, So I just uh, to one another solution out there is uh, we've seen some individuals have done for homeless populations in which they give cell phones, smartphones to the homeless as a means of, uh, for connecting uh, uh, people to, to healthcare and other social services. Yeah. Uh, one of your friends, uh, Jawad Sartaj uh, says, Chris, as always, thank you for your insights. You mentioned data interoperability, and I would offer there are five perspectives, patients, providers, payers, policymakers, and product companies. Um, how do we get consensus or traction in this area so that data democratization uh, can move from ideation to reality? You know, I think that where we have and where, where it's been always a struggle for me is that people, uh, when it comes to data democratization, they've all defined it differently. And until we come to this um, shared vision as to what it is, then it, it becomes uh, challenging to move from, from ideation to implementation um, because of it. I think folks have been, there's, there's uh, certainly uh, philosophical debates. I mean, there's whole, that's been a whole industry been created around uh, monetizing data assets and so um so you know, i think that 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 part poses um, uh, uh presents a barrier to to the idea of data democratization and i think that um we you know as part of defining and coming up with a shared vision we have to scope what it means and what it includes and what it doesn't right and um and so uh so until we get to that place i'm not sure we can move and that's part of the reason that we're still where we are i mean there obviously are technological challenges that I think can be addressed. Um, but I think the, in large part, there needs to be um, some common interests or some shared uh, perspectives on what it looks like, you know, and that's the challenge. And I, I mean, I gave you the example of, uh, of Judy and those health system administrators who were opposed to the idea of allowing patients to have access to their data and be able to do whatever they want with it. Um, so you still have, um, um, some key figures who are opposed to this idea of, of effectively democratizing data for the public good, which is what I believe. Okay, a couple more questions they're going to ask you about what we should be doing. Uh, Tony Bannon asks, can you comment on how we navigate working with regulatory agencies when trying to deploy digital technologies and drug development? Uh, my biggest advice, man, is to start early. Um, I, you know, uh, never has there been a time where uh, regulators um, the FDA specifically have been so open to partnering um, with industry and with uh, the private sector on coming up with solutions than they are now. I mean, a lot of the stuff, um, it goes back as far as, you know, even under uh, Bob Califf and then Scott Gottlieb uh, and, you know, and now the current administrator where they are, uh, or current commissioner where he, they are very, very focused on the idea of partnering with the private sector to come up with solutions. So I think when we think about it in terms of uh, even potentially submitting, uh, uh, you know, submitting or partnering with the FDA to submit and really figure out how we better leverage or, or accelerate the use of real world evidence studies, you know, it starts early with, hey, we're thinking about this. What's your thought? What's your reaction? So it's almost like you're brainstorming uh, with the regulators. And I think that um, the more we can do that with digital technologies, um, in addition to many of these uh, real-world data studies, the better. Um, so, uh, so advice, practical advice, engage with them early, pitch the concept, see what the reactions are, let them poke holes in it, 
um, and just keep that dialogue open. And um, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised in what you can get from it. Uh, Alexa Burke, uh, picking up on uh, real world evidence, she leads uh, real world evidence at Citizen. She asked Chris, can you please speak to the benefits and limitations of obtaining patient consent for sharing, for data sharing and real world uh, evidence? <laughs> Hi, Alexa. Um, um, well, I mean, she said the benefit and risk of getting, uh, is obtaining consent. Yes. As opposed yeah, to. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, informed consent is, is paramount. But I think that we, you know, we can't, you know, the, the, the biggest challenge has been, you know, the terms and conditions, almost like when I go and do uh, my iTunes account and they give me these long, long list of terms and conditions that I, honestly I don't always read. Um, and I'm sure most people don't read because then legalese. And so we have to find a way to um, simplify um, that language in layman's terms for people to be able to fully understand what they can and cannot do and what will and won't be done with their data as part of participating in the study. And uh, so uh, simplifying it and, uh, and making it a bit more straightforward um, for people is, is one way um, to obtain informed consent. But if, but if I'm hearing it correctly, is it a question around, is that important or not? Or is it, how should we do it? I guess. How should we do it as opposed to a more passive model of patient involvement without consent for sharing their data for secondary research purposes? Oh, for secondary research. Now that gets, you know, that really gets really, really tricky uh, for the simple fact that sure, you can do some uh, upfront consent, but you know, I, I think people, um, you know, many people assume that on the pharma side that we are seeing identifiable data when all the data we get is uh, de-identified. So let's, let's be clear on that. I think we should dispel any myths that are out there about the types of data that we're, uh, we're actually uh, acquiring. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, from my perspective, I would hope that, um, you know, many of the, the partners that we engage with um, are, are actually um, uh, ensuring that that consent is, uh, is, is established before they engage with us, right? Um, so that, that to me should be a standard and the norm and not the exception. Uh, Howard Rice uh, asked, telemedicine video conferencing could be a great tool for clinical trial recruitment and retention. Do you think this could be one way for pharma companies and contract research organizations to increase participation of minorities? Yeah, I do. I think uh, one of the big, uh, uh, opportunities we have and you know even going back to this COVID situation some of the challenges that uh, some of the uh, drug manufacturers were experiencing was recruitment for uh, for their uh, for their phase uh, two or three trials that they were conducting and, uh, and the reality is is that if we were better leveraging uh, much of the real-world data real-world evidence we had out there we'll get a better sense of uh, essentially where uh, many of the patients were it's almost like a hot spotting technique um, and we can get a sense of feasibility um, uh, of certain inclusion and exclusion criteria for recruiting those patients. You know, sometimes we can outline very, very rigid and rightfully so, very rigid inclusion exclusion criteria for clinical trials. Um, but we don't really have a sense of, well, how many patients can we recruit based on that, uh, those established criterion? And I think that um, what the big data sources give us is an insight into, okay, well, what's realistic, what's practical? And then where are these patients? So you can start to do some level of site feasibility. So I think we have to start using uh, our big data sources to, to really optimize how we design many of our studies. 
um, and um, and that should start uh, much earlier than it than it has been. So Chris, I'm going to ask you an easy question, a light question, then a heavy one to close. Uh, you love uh, thinking about the future. You're a Dallas Cowboys fan. Does the mm -hmm. NFL return in the fall? Uh, yes, Cowboys fan. Yes, NFL returns. Uh, maybe limited fans in the stands. And uh, and yes, we are Super Bowl bound. If that was going to be a next question. <laughs> Uh, you heard it from Chris Boone first. Yeah. Uh, Cowboys are returning to the Super Bowl. Uh, yeah. so earlier, you, we were talking about Reverend Martin Luther King and the need to uh, listen, but you said we need to listen and do. We need to do something. What do we need to do? Well, I mean, obviously, there's multiple levels of it. I mean, obviously, from a policy perspective, we have to address many of the issues that we've already discussed in this conversation. Um, I think that, um, you know, and I think that you know, when people think of policy, they still always assume federal policy. There are things that we can do at the local levels, too. And I actually tend to think a lot more gets done at the local levels, at the local municipality level, and even the state levels than uh, what we get at the federal level. Um, so we, we, have to address, we have to address the issues that we know uh, would actually have maximum impact. And, right? and, uh, and I think we're talking surface level things, and I think people are politicizing this. Black Lives Matter uh, movement right now, and uh, but I think there are things that corporations can do beyond just donating money to a nonprofit. There are things that they can do internally if they reflect on their own uh, policies and procedures, whether it be through their hiring practices, whether it be through ensuring a high, well, recruiting and retention. Right? I mean, it's one thing to recruit; it's another thing to retain. Um, you know, and creating those environments where. Uh, there's some level of equity uh, and ability uh, for folks to really thrive. I think um, when it comes to, we, we talk a lot about the broadband, uh, uh, digital technologies and, um, and how that has effects, not just on you know, education, which we, uh, we also talked about the ability to, to engage with providers and, uh, and participate in clinical trials. So you start to really get into some of these underlying issues that can be addressed if we want them to. And, um, and so I think we just need to identify what those are and address those. We shouldn't politicize broadband access. That is what it is. It benefits everybody, right? Um, and, so, uh, and so these are the types of things uh, or examples I think that we can, uh, we can address and we can address in the near term. It doesn't have to be a decade from now. Thanks for listening to this episode of Chet Talks. Subscribe to our podcast to learn more insights on health and technology and check out our website at chettalks.org.